Hello traders, welcome to the Options Trading Podcast where we talk about the markets and options trading strategies. My name is Ivan Chirilov and I'm the Managing Director of TradeFloor and with me is my co-host Graham O'Brien who's the Manager of Equity Derivative Sales at ASX. Graham, tell us about your guest today. Thank you Ivan. Well today we have a man that needs little introduction, Michael McCarthy, CMC Markets Chief Market Strategist. Uh, Michael's also been a trader with over 30 years experience. I can remember working with Michael on the uh, old options trading floor. Uh, his specialist is in derivatives trading. Uh, CMC Markets is one of Australia's largest online brokers and holder of multiple awards for their intuitive platform and competitive brokerage rates. Michael, Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. Great to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. Alrighty, big week ahead. Huge week ahead, Ivan. We've got numbers coming out of the ground. In fact, it's a data deluge this week. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not just locally, too. We do have some very important numbers across the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, Locally, we'll see a retail sales very important in light of the missing in-action consumer here in the Australian Mm. economy. But across the region, too, in Japan, we'll have industrial production data. Very important to see how the uh, Five Arrows program, Four Arrows program, extending to five soon, uh, is whether or not it's gaining traction in the industrial space, but perhaps even more importantly, particularly for Australian traders, we'll see PMIs on both services and manufacturing out of mm. China. We'll get both the official and unofficial reads, and of course, these speak directly to the outlook for commodities and commodity stocks. So, uh, very important weeks, and that's without even considering what we'll see in Europe and the US. Mm. Obviously, non-farm payrolls coming out uh, end of the week, um, going to be usually a big number. Yes, absolutely. And expectations are running higher um, uh, for the month again, about 190,000 jobs Mm. we're looking for. But before we get that, we've got a lot of important reads across the uh, US economy. In particular, we get the Case-Shiller housing data tomorrow night. Mm. Um, That's going to be very important because it'll also drop alongside the consumer conference numbers, uh, sorry, consumer confidence numbers from the conference board. Now, the impact on the US consumer, who accounts for around two-thirds of all US economic activity, will be well measured this week by those numbers. And whether or not consumers in the US are reacting to the uh, policies being implemented or introduced by the new administration will be a key question. The other big question, of course, in the US is that the US Fed have told us they saw this slowdown in the first quarter as being transitory. These numbers that we'll see this week, which include preliminary GDP data, will uh, give further information about whether that view from the Fed is correct or not. And of course, that has huge implications, not just for US interest rates and the currency, but for the share markets that are at record highs there at the moment. So last week, Fed meeting notes came out, um, gave us a little bit of an idea about how they're gonna tighten their balance sheet. Um, How important is this data going to be to how they play out the rest of the year? Oh, crucial. Markets at the moment are pricing an almost 100% probability of a rate hike in Mm. June. If we see softness in these numbers, then all bets are off and markets will have significant adjustments to Mm. make. So these are very important reads this week. Mm. What about more in the the news side? Obviously, uh, G7 came up, uh, ended up this week. Not too much out of it, aside from some more conflict between Trump coming in, pushing people aside and... um, getting some of the German manufacturers angry. Well, <laughs> and, and I guess no surprise really in hindsight to hear uh, the German Chancellor, Angel Merkel, uh, suggesting that Europe was very much on its own going forward with both uh, Britain uh, flagging its exit from the single market and the US 
beating up its European partners over the weekend when it came to funding for defence spending, uh, I think the German Chancellor's read on the situation is very realistic. Uh, and it does point to increasing isolationism at the political level at least. Whether or not that'll have an impact on trade is still very much an open mm. question. Uh, and it's something that brings into question the uh, low volatility environment we're seeing mm. at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's been a thing for a little while, obviously. Um, going back under 10 on Friday um, is the VIX. Um, so obviously that's interesting, despite all the kind of the early spike in the week after after initial uh, impeachment talks. It's startling. It's it startling. Is. There's it's so just... much known event risk this year. There are so many things that could change the course of markets, that could change the outlook, and yet volatilities are mm. at historic lows. It's an extraordinary situation. It's crazy. UK elections coming up? Yes, uh, and a lot of focus yeah. there. Obviously, Brexit, one of the key issues for mm. Europe as well as Britain. Um, what happens? After, the, uh, after Brexit is another important question with perhaps the Scots uh, <laughs> and the Irish looking at uh, maintaining independent associations with Europe. So this is a very important election because it will uh, give a, a very clear indication of whether or not the general public are behind this process and how much of a mandate Theresa May's government has to uh, implement this agreement. If we see a lack of support or receding support for the government, that might be an indication that support for Brexit is also receding. I think that would be a very surprising result, but uh, elections and uh, incorrect polls have been a feature of the market landscape for the last 12 months at least, and that could happen again. this year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even a broken clock tells the right time (laughs) twice a day. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see what happens. the pound dropped on Friday on the back of um, a tightening in the polls, mm-hmm. suggesting that the Conservatives aren't as far ahead as they uh, supposedly are. Um, the polls have kind of reflected what the market's done, the banking sector's done in May uh, in mm-hmm. Australia. Her popularity has sunk um, by a significant amount. I think it was out at about 45 points. It's now less than five, which is usually the standard margin of error anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Uncertainty out of that could lead to volatility, or maybe it doesn't. What do you think? Well, it's the bane of Western democracy at the moment, isn't it? These weak governments, governments without total mandates, without the majorities they need to implement their reform agendas. And so we're looking at the politics of compromise everywhere in the world. And the reality is it's very difficult to get things done when you have to keep everybody happy. So no surprise uh, to see that shift in currency markets as um, uncertainty increases as the election gets closer. The worst result for uh, Britain and for the markets would be a hung parliament. Mm. Nothing would get done. It's actually interesting how the, the currency markets are probably the only ones that are seeing volatility at the moment, right? I mean, anything that happens out of Europe, out of UK, out of America causes currency markets to move. It causes rates to move. But the equity markets just shrug everything off. Mm. There's an extraordinary disconnect going on at the moment, and it has to do with those record levels of accommodation from central banks around the globe. Not only is it bolstering asset prices, uh, combined with a low interest rate environment, Mm. uh, but it's also putting a blanket over the markets generally. And despite that pickup in currency volatilities, they're also uh, very near historic lows. So um, the key question for markets over the next few years is how will this blanket of money that's been laid over the global markets be withdrawn and what will the impacts mm. be. Um, we're almost certain it'll need, lead to uh, more volatility, both on upside and downside, 
but when that starts to kick in is a key question. Mm. And it was fascinating to see those Fed minutes uh, discussing once again mm. uh, the potential for to not only lift rates but to start withdrawing funds from the market that's mm. i think where we'll start to see more normal trading mm. resume yeah and obviously higher interest rates lead to less disposable income which could potentially address some of the housing problems we have here um, could lead to a further decline in the retail sector um, which is something that i do want to chat a little bit about um, how do you see the retail sector playing out in Australia, that's, we've got retail sales coming out. They're not very volatile in Australia, unlike, say, UK, but still, it's something that could shape some of the future market movements in the retail sector, which has been hammered. Oh, absolutely. And it's going to be very important across that whole sector. But I'd point out there are going to be winners and losers out of this scenario. And a lot has been made of the entry of Amazon into the Australian retail landscape. Well, I'd say to that, first of all, this is not Amazon's entry. I've had an Amazon account for more than 10 years, as have many of other Australians. So it's not their first entry. But secondly, there are plenty of stories of large and very successful overseas companies coming to Australia and tripping up on the local landscape. Mm. Now, Starbucks is one that comes to mind. Mm. They didn't understand that Australia already had a coffee culture. Mm. Uh, And when they came to compete, they opened, I think, close to 300 stores. I think they're down to 22 now. Mm. So not every overseas company that comes to Australia makes a success of it, uh, which probably mirrors the Australian experience in going overseas as well, <laughs> but that's an aside. Um, the, the reality is we don't know what the impact will be, but it's pretty clear that some retailers will do better than others. And I'd look to those that have a track record of particularly adapting well to an evolving environment. Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi are two that spring to mind. No matter what the season, over decades, both groups have demonstrated the ability to adapt to a changing retail environment. So I think the marking down of their shares might be unfair. On the other hand, we've got groups like Meyer. They're wedded to a brand-denominated strategy. They have very significant investment in bricks and mortar. And these two aspects make it difficult for them to respond both strategically and tactically to the threat that's coming through, not just from Amazon, but from all online retail. So I suspect that um, over time we're going to see who those winners and losers are. We almost certainly will. I suspect that those wedded to that old bricks and mortar style of retail could struggle those who've demonstrated ability to move quickly or have established a niche. You know, Katmandu, for example, a great example mm. of a retailer that's established a niche for itself in Australia and New Zealand uh, and has done well through uh, good times and bad because of that. So mm. individual strengths in retail will out. There's no doubt the whole pressure is under second and we could well see consolidation. Now, mm. uh, at the moment, the market's treating this all as a negative, just as they did in telcos when we're looking at the threat. But of course, once consolidation comes to a sector, we have to start factoring in takeover premiums. So mm. at the moment, I'd argue there's very little in the retail sector for potential takeovers, and that a recalibrating of the PEs is on the card no matter what happens in this space. Uh, a number of people have pointed out that some of these retailers are on very low multiples, eight mm. to 10 times, mm. and that's a very conservative positioning mm. from the market overall. Maya saw a landslide yet last week, 12%. Um, in particular, after well, it was actually most of that fall was before Topshop went under. They've got a 20% stake in Topshop. Topshop announced voluntary administration Wednesday night, um, and just before that, actually, they were still trading at a PE ratio of uh, of around about eight, eight and a half, um, with a forward ratio of about nine. Um, that drop drops their market cap to below 700 million, which is surely ripe for a takeover. They've got good assets and a very low um, book value. 
You'd have to suggest they're in a very similar situation to David Jones yes. before yep. there. They were taken out of play. Mm. Uh, there are significant assets here. And just bec- if, if people have formed the view that the current management team aren't utilising those assets well enough, then clearly mm. there is room here for somebody else to come in. Mm. And so in particular, utilising that logistic chain mm. that might have in place, which seems to be under leveraged in the current market. That online business has actually been doing well as well. Surprisingly, something that not a lot of people know about, that's actually been outperforming. So the other interesting thing that I didn't completely know about until recently is that Amazon is also tackling the online supermarket um, area. So they're looking to launch Amazon Fresh, um, currently looking um, for jobs as far as I found out. Um, and that'll be interesting because obviously the online, uh, well, Coles and, and Woolies have both done really well um, from that space. You see their trucks all around, everyone mm. delivering, clo- uh, de- delivering food. I get a fair bit of it. Um, they are probably not expecting a bit of a uh, hit in that space. Well, quite possibly not, but once again, I, I struggle to see how a newcomer will be able to take on the supply chains in particular mm. that big groups like Woolworths and um, Coles Meyer have built. Mm. Um, this will take an extraordinary investment to compete. Australia is not like the US. In the, uh, in the US, you've got a widespread, there are more than 100 cities with population over a million. That's not the case here at, at all in Australia. We're very concentrated in the major cities. The logistics of delivering to a population like this are very different. And I don't understand why so many people seem to make the assumption that Amazon would be able to hit the ground running in a very different environment. I, I think it's a vast overestimation. And I suspect that, although I'm not a fan of the Woolies business, to be frank, um, I suspect that if they are carrying a discount for the entry of Amazon, that that's uh, a bridge too far for me. So here's a question for you. Is the retail sector undervalued or about fair? Undervalued. Yeah. I think the threat's been oversold. Um, especially when we look around the market and the investment alternatives, which has been one of the key drivers of investment performance, mm-hmm. that relative cheapness mm-hmm. in retail suggests from a share price point of view, things should improve fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. How important is currency to it? Very important. Yeah. Clearly, um, if we're thinking about takeover, and, and there's still plenty of areas of Australian retail where margins are fatter than they are in the rest mm-hmm. of the world, um, particularly if we're thinking about that, then currency is an important issue. But um, it does cut both ways in the retail sector, particularly, of course, for those who source their goods from overseas. Mm. Uh, lower currency really hurts their competitive uh, mm. nature. Um, a stronger currency obviously helps them. So we do see uh, varying effects on retail from um, a higher or lower Aussie dollar. Uh, once again, it comes down to how those individual players are mm. positioned. So just quickly deciphering that. So you're a, a strong believer in the Harvey Norman and JB hi-fi model, maybe not so much Maya. Selective retail, I I would agree with that Ivan, absolutely. There are some bargains to be had, but be careful, there are some that are likely also going out the back door. It's still a little bit, um, with Maya, I mean that's just got killed. I mean is it something that you think is worth a bit of a punt or do you just stay out of it until later? It's a high risk proposition in my point of view. What I really dislike about my is that after a, week, a, a blip last year where earnings turned upward, they turned down again. Mm-hmm. Now the surest predictor of share price moves is earnings revision. Mm-hmm. And if my have to revise their earnings down again, then that will more than justify the current share price fall and could see further falls. So it's that trend in earnings that particularly worries me about uh, Maya. On the flip side, they do have some valuable assets, particularly in terms of their supply chain and at current prices, particularly with the Aussie down here, they look cheap. So 
It's a tough call. High <laughs> risk, probably one where you'd look to get a little bit asymmetric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good for options. Absolutely. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about banking because that's something that people have been talking a lot about. Um, obviously, the, banking, the aftermath of the banking levy is set in. Um, we've seen a horrendous month of May for the banks. Um, CBA down uh, 10%. Uh, NAB Westpac ANZ all down about 15 um, in just a month, which is also around about the average correction since the GFC in May. Um, what's next? Well, let's remember too that seasonally banks do uh, tend to trade weekly after they've gone ex-dividend. That's a natural process of the investment choice that many investors made when they went in, they went in for dividends. So if they're looking at selling out, they often hold on for a dividend and then sell down. So the current weakness uh, to be expected in seasonal terms. Um, and remembering too that once we take into account franking, we're looking at yields of around 8%. So most of them have gone ex-dividend about 4%. So those 10% share price falls don't look so bad in light of the dividends that investors have received. Um, so, but it, the situation is binary. Overall, the um, tax that's been introduced by the federal government is not a deal breaker, nor does it materially change the bottom line. The concern is what will happen in the future and the potential for that tax to be ramped up. But that's not a current issue. The big issue here, and, and what makes the banks here in Australia a binary proposition, is whether or not you believe there's a housing market crisis coming. Now, it has to be a crisis, not just a fall in house prices, but a, a, a crisis in the housing market where people are uh, unable to service their mortgages and passing their debt back to the bank uh, along with the asset would be very bad news for local banks. But that's a fairly extreme scenario. I don't believe a crisis is coming even if house prices do come off somewhat over the next 12 months. And if you don't believe there's a housing crisis coming, the banks look cheap. There's no two ways about it. Certainly against their global peers, certainly in terms of return on capital, certainly in terms of the dividend yields they're paying, they are cheap. Mm. Price to book ratios, one of the key issues, one of the key measures we use in banks and at the moment they're suggesting the banks are close to fair value or close to historic averages. So there's no reason to think banks are expensive unless you see a crisis in the pipeline. And that's, that's the binary proposition in banks. The problem from our customers' point of view and for many investors here in Australia is they're already overweight banks. Mm. And what do you do in a situation where you're overweight and you have some concerns? Well, naturally, you trim your sales. And I suspect that's why we're seeing current weakness in mm. bank share prices. Just in terms of the price-to-book ratio, just quickly for, uh, for the listeners listening, what do you see as fair value and what do you see as undervalued generally? When you look at that? So, so we look at different price-to-book ratios for different sectors. Mm -hmm. The regional banks, we look at a, a different holding to uh, the, the majors. Uh, and, of course, we add premium or, or, or take a discount on the basis of their credit standing as well. So the different uh, very, uh, variations across uh, those um, uh, different segments of the finance market are very important. So it's not a uniform answer, but somewhere between two and four times uh, is where we uh, generally see the, the band. Anything outside that starts to really set, set off alarm bells. Mm. Just quickly on the point of Maya, uh, that's at 0.8 at the moment. Mm. So significantly. Well, ba banks and retail are quite different. <laughs> Just, of course, but, yeah. but yes, it's an interesting point. There's another measure by which Maya could be considered mm. cheap. Yeah, I, and I don't mean to develop Maya, just... Uh, mm. Um, just to highlight the point of different price book ratios are applicable for different industry sectors. Absolutely. Um, so once this all sets, I mean, what should we expect in June, July, coming obviously into end of financial year, 
um, and ultimately into August when you know banks start kind of making a bit of headlines again. What what should we expect in the next three months? Should we be holding off, or should we be looking at uh, possibly uh, taking some small positions in it? Action last week spoke directly to market weakness. For whatever reason, despite strong leads from overseas markets, good gains for commodities, uh, the Australian share market was unable to make any significant gains. And even on days where we had copper, iron ore and US and European markets up, mm. we'd start positively and drift towards a negative. So that points to inherent weakness. And of course, with the financials being almost a half of the value of the major index, if the market is weak, then the banks are not going to rise. Mm. Uh, and that would be my great concern. The price action last week is flagging. We're about to go through a period of softness. Mm. That might mean a pullback to 5,600. At the extreme, it might mean a pullback to 5,150. Mm. So it's a time for a bit of caution, uh, but there are a number of good ways to take advantage of a potential move like that. And, and frankly, for investors and traders, the reality is we need movement mm. to make excess returns. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, one of the good points of looking, one, one of the easy ways of seeing that is um, S&P closed on its highs again on Friday, record highs, um, uh, 4.15 I think was, 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 the, uh, uh, was the final number, 2.415. Um, well, we could, we're uh, 200 points from the high, recent high. Yeah, alone. from the post-GFC, yeah. let alone the all-time yeah, high at exactly. 68.52. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Um, there are a number of good reasons for that. I mean, one of them is the lack of tech stocks in our mm -hmm. own environment. That's where a large expansion in the US economy has been. Yeah. We simply don't have representation in that. And of course, our fortunes are much more tied to the commodity cycle than many other share markets. So there are good reasons for all of that. But there's fear both here and in the US and in Germany, where the DAX is at an all-time high as well, mm -hmm. that we're looking at uh, some real risk. And so for our clients, there's been a real shift towards asymmetric risk profiles. I've been throwing that term around because I like the sound of it. I just mean one-sided risk. And the reality is we've seen a lot of people use one of two strategies. One is to protect their share portfolios with put options, index put options, a very straightforward play in the current low volatility environment, or lower volatility environment, option prices are lower. And so that one uh, has been stacking up quite well. I did the numbers uh, a couple of times over the last few months and for a, a Covering your portfolio at close to the money, say 2% down for three months, costs around one and a quarter to one and a half percent of the value of portfolio. Now, some investors think it's worth paying that for a quarter to get that sleep at night factor. And particularly for those who are worried about a sell in May effect, uh, that could be an effective strategy. Now, those who uh, have taken a more extreme view I've seen sell down to cash entirely. They've sold out all of their share market holdings. And of course, they must have factored in the tax implications of such a move. But what they've done is moved to cash and then bought some cheaper upside call options. The idea is that if the market crashes, they're protected because they're in cash. But if the market continues to defy gravity in the way it has done for a long period of time now, they'll benefit from those long call positions. So that's what I mean by asymmetric risk, that one-sided risk. You win mm. if the market continues to move up and you don't get hurt badly if the market falls. Mm. And some other strategies you can do around that is um, possibly look at, um, if you expect movement from either the upside or the downside, is potentially um, have a either a one-to-one straddle or start putting in the... The one-by-two. The one-by-two. <laughs> 
strips and now this one's not for everyone Ivan but <laughs> as a, a derivative trader I've got to tell you the one by two um, usually call ratio yeah. is one of my favorite trades <laughs> um, and in the current environment um, especially with lower volatilities I love being long the two short one long two and I often go deeper in the money to put on the trade um, that gives me good value out of the short core position I get you know, good funding out of it and then a bit above the money for my two. I sometimes even get a credit for the spread, and if the market powers, either way, I generally do pretty well out of it. <laughs> and how do you put it on? I, gen I tend to leg it on. Yep. Um, that's one of the things, you know, I look for patterns in intraday trading. Mm -hmm. So uh, in terms of getting it on, I, I tend to rely on my um, uh, long experience in, in day trading and markets to mm -hmm. sort of help me leg in. It doesn't work every time. Sometimes I, I get a worse price in, in trying to leg the trade on. Mm -hmm. But uh, on balance, I think I win at it. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's what I'll do. And, and it, particularly if I see an opening impulse, I think it's a false move. That's a great opportunity to put on one leg of the strategy and then wait for the market to revert over the course of the trading day to put on the other leg. There's risks in this approach, as always, um, and one of my concerns is, and one of my rules is, that I can't finish the day without completing the trade, which sometimes means some terrible prices, but that's, that's a risk as a trader I'm prepared to take. It's not for everybody, as I say. So when you're legging it on, are you making sure that you're legging the long side first rather than the short, or the short first and then the long? Um, Graham, I'm a little indifferent to that, having traded from both sides for many years, mm -hmm. but I think you're raising an important point. For most people, it'd be a smart idea to put the long on first yep. uh, rather than have that open-ended risk that can come with the short position. Yeah, exactly. In my case, it was always whatever got filled first. <laughs> <laughs> let the market decide. Let the market decide, which usually meant some really bad prices. So. <laughs> um, Tell us a little bit about your trading. Obviously, you trade a fair bit. Um, how do you come into trading options? How, how do they form your day-to-day? -day? Well, um, I mean, once, and obviously, it's not the only thing you trade yeah. now. But. One, once again, um, this is just my personal approach, and it reflects my experience. I've been doing this for a very long time, and I've been lucky enough to trade across a lot of different markets. So I actually use a portfolio of trading accounts. So I have an investing account, my self-managed super fund, and then I have trading accounts. And I aim, have different aims and different goals, and one of the things that I aim for is to have uncorrelated trading strategies. And the options strategies that I have are particularly useful uh, in this respect, because I can get, I can take any positioning I want in, in my options account, and I usually do so in accord with what's happening in my other accounts. So if I'm aggressively long uh, across a number of accounts, investment and trading accounts, then it's quite likely I'll have some protection in my options trading account to, to make sure that my portfolio of trading strategies will be okay no matter what happens in the markets. It's mm. an interesting approach. So tell us a little bit about CMC. I mean, a lot of people now know about CMC. They may or may not know about the stove breaking side, mm -hmm. um, which is the side that I believe you spend most of your time working in. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a little bit about that business and how it looks and how can people benefit from it. Well, CMC is basically a trade house. We're expanding across markets. We've been up and running since 1989. We came to Australia in 2002. And now around the globe, we have tens of thousands of customers on our two main trading platforms. Uh, we are a CFD provider and a spread better in Europe, and that means for traders looking for leverage and access to markets, we have a superior offering with almost 11,000 trading instruments on our CFD platform. But 
very importantly here in Australia is our stockbroking operation. Um, we took over the old Andrew West, the first online stockbroker here in Australia, so we've got a long tradition in online broking. Um, for the seventh year in a row, we've just won the CanStar Award for Best Value Broker, and that reflects our proposition to the market. Our focus is on self-directed investors and on traders, and that's where our offering sits. Uh, and it's not just about the um, access to options and to share trading. Uh, we also offer access to the M funds, to the ASX book build facility, uh, and, to, and a number of other facilities uh, in conjunction with the ASX, which give us the ability to offer our investors a full suite of investment mm -hmm. products. M Fund's an interesting one because you are one of the um, only major players that do offer M Fund and you're very active in promoting M Fund as a, as a company. Um, why was M Fund so important to you, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, no, I'm absolutely happy to answer that one. Um, for, even as a professional investor and trader, I use managed funds. I can't be across every single piece of information that comes out in every single market in the world. So I use fund managers and I pay their fees for uh, the service they provide me. That is, they use their expertise to use their best endeavours to select good investment. So it's something I'm happy to pay for. One of the issues with the Australian landscape is that a lot of people are tied in one way or another to a wealth manager of some sort. And that means that they can't be independent about their assessment of the situation. At CMC, we're not tied to any wealth managers. So for us, it's about the client's well-being. Having funds as part of your investment approach is a smart thing to do. And so from our point of view, the right thing to do is to make sure that our clients have access to them. That's why we support M funds. Makes perfect sense. Best way for people to find out more about CMC and is there a number they can call or just go straight on the website? Yes, yes, of course. Um, go, to, go to the website, cmcmarkets.com.au. You'll actually be redirected to our global site, but nonetheless, you'll find everything uh, that you want to know. And I should stress, there are also plenty, there's plenty of information about the risks involved in share markets and CFD trading, and there's also our product disclosure statements, uh, as well as other important information about risk. Anybody who's thinking about particularly using CFDs, but entering the market in any way, should understand the risks. Definitely. Involved. Anything with leverage does require a very strong risk management policy. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Michael. That was uh, insightful today. We were planning for this to be our last uh, our last podcast, but I've and myself have been talking, and we're actually looking to do a wrap-up of the game next week. So we're going to look at the top five traders that uh, played in the game throughout, uh, throughout the two months and see which strategies they were implementing and do a little review of back of uh, what worked and what didn't over the, over the life of the game. So um, please uh, join us next week. We'll be looking at uh, what the winners have done. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.